am Beth Bartell. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 31st, 2012. Coming up, we explore what a mid-sized volcanic eruption in the Horn of Africa can tell us about atmospheric currents. This led to the largest stratospheric effects for the last 20 years. And we learn how China's effort to restrict traffic during the 2008 Beijing Olympics took quite a bite out of greenhouse gas emissions globally. Traffic reductions during the Beijing Olympics helped clean up the smog, but they also had implications for climate change. We begin, as usual, with some of the recent news in science. The worst U.S. drought in 50 years is hitting the heartland hard, with withered corn, jacked feed prices, skinnier pigs, and reduced milk production. The USDA recently told us as consumers to expect higher food prices throughout next year. Well, a study released last week looks not at the current drought, but at a drought from a decade ago. Researchers refer to it as the worst drought in the western U.S. since the Dark Ages, and they warn that there is more to come. According to the report, the 2000 to 2004 drought affected precipitation, soil moisture, forests, grasslands, and water tables throughout the West. Crop productivity in much of the West fell 5% and runoff in the upper Colorado River Basin was cut in half. But the drought also had another potentially global consequence. Vegetation is usually a sink or storage container for carbon dioxide. But during the drought, leaves released carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as vegetation withered. The study found the drought cut carbon storage in half for a massive region of Western North America with the effect of amplifying global warming. Researchers say this climate extreme may become the new norm. Their models predict that 85% of years in the next century will be as dry or drier than this turn-of-the-century drought. And they warn that this carbon sink, at least in Western North America, could disappear by the end of the century. The human capacity of self-perception, self-reflection, and consciousness development are among the unsolved mysteries of neuroscience. Despite modern imaging techniques, it's still impossible to fully visualize what goes on in the brain when people move to consciousness from an unconscious state. What's difficult is watching our brain during this transitional change. Scientists from Max Planck Institutes of Psychiatry in Munich and other German institutions have now studied people who were aware that they are dreaming while being in a dream state, and they're also able to deliberately control their dreams. These so-called lucid dreamers have access to their memories during lucid dreaming. They can also perform actions and remain aware of themselves, all while remaining unmistakably in a dream state and not waking up. By comparing the activity of the brain during one of these lucid periods with the activity measured immediately before in a normal dream, the scientists could identify the characteristic brain activities of lucid awareness. The general basic activity of the brain is similar in a normal dream and in a lucid dream, but in a lucid state, the activity in certain areas of the cerebral cortex increases markedly within seconds. These regions are responsible for self-assessment, self-perception, and the ability to evaluate our own thoughts and feelings. The findings confirm earlier studies and have made the neural networks of a conscious mental state visible for the first time. Something to think about before you turn the light out tonight. 
You may also want to think about your ancestors. It's been long thought that 40,000 years ago, the modern humans who lived in what we now call France were more advanced than their contemporaries back in Africa. After all, the humans who lived in what is now Europe were creating amazing cave paintings filled with running animals and hunters, and were also making wonderful tools out of stone and bone. In contrast, scientists thought that the humans who lived in what is now South Africa started making tools and art like this only half as long ago, or around 20,000 years ago. But new research from CU Boulder shows that humans in South Africa, 45,000 years ago, were also using sophisticated tools made of stones and bones, and they also used these materials for ornaments. What's more, CU Boulder scientist Paula Vila says that while they are not deep, sealed up caves in There are not deep, sealed-up caves in South Southern Africa like there are in France. There are many shallow rock shelters that show animals that were being hunted and how people there hunted them using bows. The rock paintings also show women using digging sticks. The research revolves around a find in Border Cave, close to South Africa's northeastern border with Swaziland. And a few tidbits for you: on this day in 1954. A six-year research program found that Los Angeles smog was caused by the chemical reaction of sunlight on auto and industrial emissions. And ten years later, in 1964, the American space probe Ranger 7 transmitted the first close-up images of the moon's surface ever taken by a U.S. spacecraft, beginning the mapping of the surface in preparation for a future lunar landing. Ranger spacecraft were designed to fly straight down towards the moon and send images back until the moment of impact. Ranger Seven returned a total of four thousand three hundred eight photographs before its demise on the moon's surface. Sing it now. Today we have two atmospheric features, both very different in scope. One has to do with a volcano, and the other with traffic in Beijing. And both our researchers come to us from NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, right here in Boulder. We start with a volcano. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I am Beth Bartel. We've known for a long time that volcanic particles and gases can travel around the world, often affecting climate. The 1815 eruption of the Indonesian volcano Tambora chilled New England and Europe, resulting in what came to be known as the Year Without a Summer. More recently. The 1991 eruption of Pinatubo in the Philippines cooled temperatures throughout the northern hemisphere by up to 0.6 degrees Celsius. Those were both sizable eruptions. Today, we're going to talk about what a mid-sized eruption in the Horn of Africa can tell us about atmospheric circulation. Here in the studio is NCAR researcher Bill Randall, who recently co-authored a study about a volcano in Eritrea called Nabro. Bill, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Um, let's start by talking a little bit about this volcano. Did you know anything about this volcano, or even that it existed before this study? No, we didn't know anything. We we first observed this by seeing the effects in the stratosphere from some satellite observations. And how did you find that? What were you looking for? Well, we we analyzed long time records of satellite observations of of small particles or aerosols in the stratosphere, and we can we've been doing this for many many decades actually, and. We, we update observations, and we, what we saw last year was a very unusual effect of aerosols coming in in a particular region in the stratosphere and, and being confined there for some time, and subsequently being spread over the whole hemisphere. 
What did this look like? Is this something that you were looking at in in an in imagery, something that you could describe? Yeah, we were making maps of the satellite data, and what you see in the map is just a kind of a hot spot or a, you know, a red color in our in our plots of <clears throat> of high aerosol amounts in in a particular region of of this Asian monsoon circulation. Did you know right away that it was? Of volcanic origin, we had high suspicion. We didn't really uh, that that's that's the source of of large amounts of aerosol in the stratosphere or, or volcanoes. But what we typically see for other volcanoes are are <clears throat> are transit to the stratosphere, filling up the entire globe or or perhaps the tropics or or one hemisphere. This was different in the in the sense that it was confined to a particular region for a long time. And why was that? Well, it's because of the circulation within this Asian monsoon anticyclone, it's called. It's a persistent, large-scale, the largest circulation feature on the planet, actually. It it exists every summer from about 10 kilometers up to 20 kilometers. It's a large anticyclonic circulation that confines chemicals and and contributes to the variability of the monsoon in this region. Tell us about this eruption. How how big was it? So we were talking, I just uh, mentioned Pinatubo, which was quite a large eruption. How does Navarro compare? It was much smaller. Pinatubo went directly to the stratosphere, as many volcanoes do, up to about 25 kilometers or maybe even a little bit higher. Navarro was much, much less intense. It maybe went up to maybe 15 kilometers. It didn't exactly go directly to the stratosphere, which makes it very different. There are many volcanoes that don't go to the stratosphere. When that happens, they get washed out. The effects of them get washed out. They don't persist very long, maybe a few months or something. Nabro, the effects of Nabro ended up getting entrained into this Asian monsoon circulation and, and sucked into the stratosphere after a, a week or two. Then, the, <clears throat> then after that, when a volcano gets into the stratosphere, it can persist for a very long time, of one year or many years. And how long did you see with Nabro? Are the particles still? We, we've seen it for around? about a year so far. It, it's, it's not very large now. The effects have kind of gone away by this time. Um, what, uh, tell us about the particles. What, what do volcanoes spew into the atmosphere? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, so what actually comes out of a volcano where there's ash and many kinds of gases, but, a, but an important component for, for this process is sulfur dioxide. SO2 is a chemical formula. That, <clears throat> go, that gets changed into sulfate aerosols. It takes about a month for SO2 to be changed into sulfate aerosols. Those are those grow in the stratosphere, and then, then they <clears throat> they suck up water vapor. They grow to be larger particles, and that's that's the actual climate effect is those sulfate aerosols in the stratosphere. And has this volcano had an effect on climate? Well, that's a good question. We don't we don't really know yet. I think it, it as uh, I said early on, this turns out to be the largest amount of aerosols we see in the stratosphere since Pinatuba for about 20 years. What we see it typically are, are a number of small volcanoes over that over the last 20 years. Every every year or every two years, there's a, an appreciable size volcano, but relatively small. <clears throat> um, the amount that came out of Nabro, the result is is the largest since Pinatubo over 20 years. We don't really know if there's a climate effect yet or or an effect on the stratospheric ozone, for example. That's something that's ongoing research. And what are the broader implications of this of this study? What does this study will this study change how you view atmospheric circulation? This this turns out to be like the the perfect natural experiment. We've been interested in studying the circulation through this monsoon region, particularly into the stratosphere, for a number of years in our group. 
What this is is, a, as I said, a perfect natural experiment of a tracer that's released and goes right through the monsoon relatively quickly within a couple of weeks. And so we're, we're hoping to learn more about the circulation in the atmosphere and, and be able to simulate that in our global models. And what implications can that have for climate studies, for example? Well, we need to understand the, the, all the processes in the atmosphere, the, the transport in, in, in thunderstorms, the large-scale circulation, the small-scale circulation, and every incremental improvement in the, in the global models we can, we can achieve makes us be able to predict the future better. Um, what so this volcano, medium size eruption? Um, could you tell us a little bit about the process of getting these particles up into the stratosphere? This is a good question. We don't really understand. It, it's it kind of it happened very quickly. We see from the time the volcano went off to about one or two weeks later, then we see effects in the stratosphere. We had envisioned previously that the circulation through the system was relatively slow, and it would take months to take things. Uh, to higher altitudes. What we see is it happened in a couple of weeks, and we don't really understand why, how this happened, and uh, that's a part of ongoing research. It's very exciting, actually. Normally, with a volcano like Pinatubo, Krakatoa, something, a huge eruption, would those particles and those gases get right up into the stratosphere? They go right up there, and then they stay. And in this case, it took a couple of weeks? A couple of weeks, that's right. And so could this be typical for mid-size eruptions now? That well, this this particular eruption happened to be in the right place. It was near the circulation and the right time during the summertime. If it was somewhere else and a different time of year, this would not have happened. So it was fortuitous, it so was, to, it was, so As speak. I said, it was a perfect natural experiment. It's just tremendously exciting to, to have this happen and be, be watching when it happens. Are there other volcanoes that are also well-placed for a similar We situation? don't know. You know, NABRO had never erupted in, in, in human history, so um, we don't know. <laughs> it's a short answer. Yeah. I'm, I'm not an expert on volcanoes, so I just don't know. And do you know if NABRO, if the eruption um, spewed off a particularly large amount of of sulfur dioxide? dioxide? It, it was actually the, the largest amount of sulfur dioxide ever measured. It was so the, for whatever reason, this particular volcano had a very large fraction of sulfur dioxide that it emitted along with ash and, and other gases. Wow! So we can uh, we can use volcanoes to uh, to understand atmospheric circulation and and maybe if we're lucky, you guys are constantly looking for this stuff. So so if something else like this happens, you'll see it. Well, satellites are constantly monitoring the uh, the upper atmosphere, and, and uh, we 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 will see the next one if it happens again. Well, great. Thank you very much for chatting with us. Bill Randall is the Division Director of the Atmospheric, Science, Atmospheric Chemistry Division at NCAR. That research was published in the July 6th issue of Science. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. This year, London aims to have the Olympics the greenest one ever. The jury's still out on how the city will score. But a new study shows that China gets a gold medal of sorts for dramatically reducing carbon dioxide emissions during the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Yes, that's Beijing, one of the most polluted cities in the world. 
You probably read about how China shut down many coal-fired power plants to make the air tolerable during the Olympics, but the new study shows that China severely restricted auto traffic in the city, and that led to a major reduction in global greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, it could be enough to make a dent in curbing climate change if similar efforts were to be made in cities around the world and on a sustained basis. To discuss the new paper and its implications, we have in the studio another Boulder scientist, and she led the study. It's Helen Worden, and she works at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Here, Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, first, were you at the 2008 Olympics? <laughs> I was not. You didn't lose any any breath. <laughs> <laughs> no, and hopefully the athletes didn't as well. And just tangentially, so it's coincidental that the publication of this study comes as we're kicking off. They're kicking off the London Olympics. Uh, yeah, that's just a coincidence. Uh, sometimes peer review takes a while, but good for publishers, I guess. <laughs> so I'm curious, what got you interested in the China story? You know, there had been a lot of efforts, including Boulder here, to set targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but this is quite different. I mean, basically, China wanted to make it breathable for athletes, and was this sort of tangential or coincidental? Um, it was. It was just a very unique opportunity to study the effects of a traffic reduction like that from space. It was such a drastic reduction from 2007 to 2008, and we could obviously see it in our satellite data. And well, first, how dramatic was that reduction? You're saying just in one year, right? Just from one year to the next, and during that snapshot in time. Not you're not talking about annual emissions, but just. Well, it was for a whole month, so from、mm -hmm. August of two thousand seven to August of two thousand and eight, and we took measurements over the, the month for both years, and you could see a dramatic difference. How dramatic?、Um, I think it was at least thirty percent less, 30%? and we were measuring、yeah. carbon monoxide. Not, we weren't directly measuring carbon dioxide, which is the greenhouse gas. But、uh, you can infer carbon dioxide by from measurements of carbon monoxide. Well,、wow, so thirty percent. And how did you actually go about measuring it? I take it you're not obviously you weren't there, right? <laughs> no, we weren't there. And so, as I said, we we look at、uh, satellite measurements, and even those are from、um, inferred from the measurement of reflected sunlight and heat. And so,、um, you can't see CO or carbon monoxide in the atmosphere. But you can see what it does. We know what it does to heat and reflected sunlight, and we can、uh, measure that effect. So, we know how much、uh, carbon monoxide there was in 2007, and then in 2008, and so we could use that difference, and then the known relationship between carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide for fossil fuels, and from that come up with an estimate for carbon. Dioxide and how much that was reduced. So you were looking for a way to measure reductions, if any, in CO two, right? Yeah, we thought that would be a real interesting、uh, thing to find out, and we hadn't seen anybody else try to estimate that. And why did you choose looking at traffic reductions as opposed to? I mentioned before, you know, China shut down a bunch of yeah, coal plants, so, so there must be some big drop in CO two emissions from that. Right. Well, so they had measured, they had reduced、uh, the power plants and a lot of industries, a lot of construction activities, and so we can measure the、uh, carbon monoxide difference for all of those things. But for、um, well, for power plants, actually, there is not a lot of carbon monoxide, so you wouldn't see too much from the 
the power plants. But for industry, you do see a difference. The problem is, is that all the processes that are, you know, industrial processes don't have a, a very specific ratio. It's not all fossil fuels. So you don't know exactly what the ratio of carbon monoxide mm-hmm. to carbon dioxide is. And do you know in China anyway, and maybe extrapolating sort of for here, roughly what percentage of emissions, of CO2 emissions, come from transportation sector versus, say, electricity elsewhere? You know, I couldn't find a good estimate for that. So I'm sure it, it probably is out there, but I couldn't find it in the published literature. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, this was, you know, and, and it also seemed like it would be interesting to, to know just for one sector like transportation what that, what the reduction in carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide was. And I know you're not writing a policy piece, but it also seems like that could have big implications for um, welfare individuals, city planners. It's a transportation sector is maybe not cheap, but <laughs> relatively easy to control. Perhaps. Well, it's it's another piece of information. So it, it could be used by city planners or other policymakers. Um, we didn't set out to, you know, we just set out to measure what the effect was of, of, of a particular policy decision which was to, for cleaner air. So this was an added benefit. Right. Um, I wonder how many people living in Beijing actually noticed and then gasped at the <laughs> the new spike in CO2 and carbon monoxide emissions after Beijing. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of, of reports whether the, the whole effort was sustainable, but I've heard anecdotally that people did you know, appreciate the cleaner air and and perhaps some of the traffic restrictions have remained. And the so-called national crane was not to be seen for a while. They must have been shocked. <laughs> the national bird, rather, the crane. Yeah. Um, and you, so you said there was a 30%, that's a huge drop during that month over a year's time. And that not only, that was huge for China, but had implications in, in making a dent in global greenhouse gas emissions. Speak to that a bit more. Yes. Yeah, so so that 30% was just what we observed over Beijing. But then we compared, excuse me, our estimate for carbon dioxide, which was about 66 U.S. tons per day of um, carbon dioxide. How does that and, translate, do you know, in terms of, say, megawatts and power plants? I couldn't tell you megawatts, but what we found is that it was a quarter of a percent of what would be needed globally to keep warming to less than 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And the 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit significance is, is what? That's, that's sort of the level where, you know, above which people are looking at pretty dramatic climate change, pretty uh, major effects. So I can't say too much more about that. That's not my expertise. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's uh, what emissions we'd have to start cutting emissions in order to keep the warming below that. And this was about a quarter of 1%, which doesn't sound like very much, but Beijing is just one city. And one small period of time, one city. Well, no, you'd have to sustain those cuts. Got it. So you'd have to keep keep that level of decrease. And finally, um, any quick message for those of us in Boulder and the Denver metro area um, from the study? <laughs> well, like I say, we, we weren't making any sort of uh, policy direction with this study. But uh, but I think, you know, if we want, you know, to come up with the added benefit of, of reducing traffic and making better commuting options, then this would be an example of what, what can happen. 
Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was Helen Worden, a scientist at NCAR here in Boulder. Her study was published earlier this month in Geophysical Research Letters. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Beth Bartell and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music this week from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews and to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. You can also follow us now on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Susan Moran.